This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So full disclosure, you almost got video Zach this morning, and in some ways I'm sorry that you didn't, because I think he's probably preaching a much better sermon about this in Herndon than I am here. Um, And that's not because... I didn't have time to write the sermon. It's not because I didn't have adequate resources to research the sermon. It's not because I had a work emergency that disrupted my timeline. It's simply because I'm afraid of preaching this sermon because we're going to spend the next 30 or so minutes talking about forgiveness and how God calls us to it. And I'm afraid to teach about it because I am in it right now with uh, a family member that I love very much. And we had a very serious falling out a couple of months ago and we haven't spoken since. And I know that forgiveness doesn't necessitate reconciliation in every case as, in, in as much that you wouldn't say to someone who's been assaulted, you have to forgive, and that means you must reconcile with the person who assaulted you. We would never say that. Forgiveness doesn't always necessitate reconciliation, and there are times at which that dividing line is very black and white, but it's not in my situation. I don't have any bruises to show you, and the, the words that were thrown at me weren't quite so graphic that I would call it verbal abuse, but... About a month after the incident, when they called to wish me a happy birthday, I didn't pick up the phone because I'm just, um, I'm just so tired. I'm so tired of having to defend my own boundaries. I'm tired of riding a roller coaster that I never bought a ticket for. And I didn't take the call because I know that the person on the other end is going to be affectionate and funny and charming and loving. But instead of making me feel good, it's going to make me feel crazy. Because how, how, can you, how can you ask to have all the warmth of reconciliation with none of the work of resolution? It just feels so futile to me. And I love this person deeply. But of course, as with most relationships, the depth of the hurt corresponds to the depth of the love. And so I'm afraid to preach this sermon because I feel like I'm rather taking my life into my hands before the Lord to preach on something that I feel like I might be failing at. And I'm struggling to figure out what forgiveness means in the situation, what, what, where the line is between forgiveness and reconciliation, how they interact. In other words, do I take the call or not? And if not, will God no longer take mine? If you've been tracking with us, we're continuing in our examination of the Sermon on the Mount. As OJ mentioned, Jesus' inaugural address is the king. And the sermon began with the Beatitudes, the blessings, blessings on the poor in spirit. Blessings, not rewards, uh, because it starts with first our needs. We all have a poverty of spirit as a result of sin. He then empowers us with the you are statements. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Not you will be, but you already are because of me. And then he invites us to understand not just the letter, but the spirit of his law. Not just the commands, but but the spirit behind them. So we can see it not as legalism, but as acts of gratitude for grace and forgiveness already received. And then we hear the commands themselves. Yes, don't murder, but don't even hate. Yes, don't cheat, but don't even lust. Love your neighbor, but also your enemy. Be perfect as your father is perfect. Oh my goodness, I am so glad that we started with blessings on my poverty of spirit, right? Because these commands, they really clarify just how poor I really am. Then we moved into the devotions. Give to the needy, but don't tell anybody. Pray to the Father, but don't be a show-off. I love how practical Jesus can be. 
Last week we looked at the Lord's Prayer which, in which Jesus teaches us to make seven petitions to God which encompass the whole of human need. Three divine petitions. God be praised, his kingdom come, his will be done. Four human peti- petitions. Feed us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. And then one big fat P.S. Verse 14. If you forgive other people when they forgive, <clears throat> excuse me, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer, which encompass the whole of human need, but only one gets a P.S. And why? Because oh, forgiveness is hard. Running a marathon is hard, right? Not that I would know, but I do hear things from my friends. It's hard. You're running for, for miles and miles and hours. And hey, guys, nobody's chasing you. Like, you just have to keep making yourself run. You have to motivate yourself to do it. That's hard, right? But, you know, you train for it, you run your race, you're done with it, you get a medal, the props, respect of your peers, and eventually you decide to work at Summit Church because everyone here has run a marathon except for me, apparently. But, but when you do it, you do it and you're done, right? I, I think that forgiveness is hard, much harder, in fact, than some of the most physically challenging things that we do because in some cases, the race is, is never over, You just have to keep running. Just before he died, C.S. Lewis wrote, I think I have at last forgiven the cruel schoolmaster who so darkened my youth. I had done it many times before, but this time I think I've really done it. Forgiveness is, is often a process that's confusing, so I think the first thing that we have to devote some time to this morning is what does it actually mean to forgive? Because I think culturally we've made forgiveness into something that it's not. You know, we, 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 people apologize to us and we say, oh, that's okay, which kind of cheapens it. It, it. it makes the sin seem less sinful or offi- offensive. And, 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 or, or we tend to think that forgiveness is a feeling, right? But I can't find anywhere in scripture that says you have to feel a certain way in order to forgive. It's just not that nebulous. Uh, forgiveness is, a, is an action. It's a concrete action. It's not a feeling. It's not an excuse. It's not sending someone good vibes only. It's a, it's a concrete action. And that action is this, relinquishing our right to retribution, giving up the right to demand what's owed to us. It's saying before God, you know, I I relinquish my right to retribution for the sin against me. It was sinful, yes, but I, I will not sit as judge and jury over this person, Lord, because you are the only righteous judge. It's giving up our right to retribution to God. It's a very concrete action. And what do we call to forgive? Everything. Between the Luke and the Matthew accounts, they really cover the entire gamut of sins. Luke's version says trespasses, the words there indicating sins of commission, active sins, actively trespassing across a known boundary. And then in Matthew's version, the Lord's Prayer uses ophilimata, translated debts. These, these are sins of omission, things that we owed God but did not give, things that we should have produced but didn't. And in the PS here, Jesus uses the word periptomata, which means slips, translated slips. These are even the little mistakes that are caused by weakness or ignorance. Because parenthetically, guys, not not everything is actually a forgivable offense. Colossians 3.13 says, make an allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. So faults are actually treated differently than offenses. Some Some things aren't sins, they're just faults, and it would be an overreaction to demand an apology for them. Sometimes people do things that drive us absolutely crazy, but they're not actually sins. If you need an example, here's a brief list of non-sins that are purely hypothetical and have nothing to do with my husband. (laughs) Loading silverware into the dishwasher upside down. 
not canceling the last few seconds on the microwave, so when I look at it, it doesn't tell me the time. It just tells me that there are seven unused seconds remaining forever. Snoring. Against all sense of justice, not a sin. If my husband were to make a similar list of purely hypothetical, annoying non-sins, it might say, never noticing yard work or landscaping that took hours and sweat to complete. Forgetting to adjust the AC when I leave the house for work. Uh, feeling judged for not loading the dishwasher correctly when I take the initiative to do the dishes. When we first moved into our house, um, I decided to make one of our wall, one of our bedroom walls into this photo collage. I thought that would be sweet and fun to like have our family up there. After about six months, Rob says to me, hey, love the pictures, but can we move the one of your mother into the living room so that she's not always overlooking our marriage bed? And I'm like, oh, I am so sorry. That's so awkward. He wasn't mad because it wasn't a sin against him, just a terrible, terrible fault. Um, there is a category, right, of, of things that aren't really forgivable offenses. They may be thoughtless, but they're not malicious. They, they, and, and it would improve our general peace of mind and our quality of life to recognize them as such. There are faults that aren't sins. But then there are, of course, things that must be forgiven because they are not simply faults. And we're called to forgive all of it the little slips, as well as the malicious cruelties, all of it. We're, we're called to relinquish our right to retribution, to relinquish it to God, to forgo the justice that is owed to you. I went to a conference a few years back, and the speaker talked about forgiveness in terms of a vertical and horizontal orientation. So vertical forgiveness happens between man and God. It happens upward. Vertical forgiveness happens when you say, yes, what they did was wrong, it was a sin, but I relinquish God up to you the right to retribution. And some of you are probably like, awesome, great, bring on the apology, I'm ready to forgive, I'm ready to turn it over to God. Unfortunately, with the continued consistent influence of sin in our hearts, we rarely get the apology we deserve, and we almost never get the one that we want. But the wonderful, or perhaps infuriating, depending on how you're looking at it, reality of vertical forgiveness is that we don't actually need an apology for it to work. The person who's harmed you never has to apologize for you to decide that you'll allow God to be the judge and hold all rights to justice. And, and what's wonderful about this is that vertical forgiveness actually sets you free. Yes, you, you are relinquishing your right to vengeance, but you are the one who is set free. You have the power to be set free whether they apologize or not. Because, because yes, they're still guilty, but when you stood as their accuser, you essentially handcuffed yourself to them so that they couldn't get away. But that meant that wherever you went, they went with you. Whatever you did, they did with you. By releasing your claim on, your, on their penance, you've set yourself free. Horizontal forgiveness, on the other hand, that takes place between man and man. Horizontal forgiveness happens when the person who sinned against you comes to you and says, yes, I did this, and they apologize, and they name the sin, and you, who have already been set free, then have the opportunity to free this person with your pardon. You've been set free and now you've released the other captive from the law of sin and death. So, so again, forgiveness is not a feeling, it's, it's a concrete action. And you may never feel like you wanna forgive someone and they may, may never ask your forgiveness, but you have the power to be set free. They don't have that power over you. It's a concrete action, it's releasing what's owed to you. Now what forgiveness is not, I think is also important to point out at this point because forgiveness is not, don't get me wrong, forgiveness is not saying that what happened to you was okay. When someone apologizes, we almost instinctively use that phrase, it's, oh, it's okay, and, it's, and, and that's not really forgiving something. 
that's excusing something. And it's also a lie. Because it's not okay, is it? If it was okay, by definition, it wouldn't need to be forgiven. So in order to actually practice forgiveness, we, we have to first call sin what it is. We have to give it a name. Forgiveness is never, forgiveness is never ever about pretending that what happened didn't happen. That's only going to add fuel to the resentment in your heart, and it's not pies. It's not even biblical, because God never pretends our sin didn't happen. He has holes in his hands and feet that prove that it did. God never says that our sin wasn't that bad. Of course it was that bad. If it was okay, it wouldn't need to be forgiven. It wasn't okay that he left. It wasn't okay that she cheated. It wasn't okay that he hit you. It wasn't okay that they manipulated. It wasn't okay he took advantage of you. It wasn't okay that she drank. None of it was okay. If it was okay, it would not need to be forgiven. But I think we can all look around ourselves at the damage that's done and what's missing. And I can I think we can all see that something very serious has happened. Something was not okay. And that something is serious enough to need to be forgiven, not just excused. You have to name the sin before you're capable of forgiving it. And I think that you'll find that when you name it, there will be some healing just in the very act of calling it what it is. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Seven petitions. Seven petitions in the Lord's prayer that encompass the whole of human need, but only one gets a PS and why again because it's just that hard. This is so hard that we've been, we've been trying to avoid doing it since before Jesus was ever born. According to the law in Deuteronomy 15, every seventh year there was to be a forgiving of all debts. If someone owed something to you, if you made a debt to them, or a loan to them, in the seventh year it would be forgiven. This was God's wise and merciful design to prevent cyclical poverty. I wish we had time to read all of Deuteronomy 15 and and Leviticus 25 because it's just this beautiful social picture of, of love in action. You should go home and read it. But in the first century BC, the prosbol was established, and this was a writ... That, meant, that, that modified private loans so they would be collected in public court, and it said that the, that the law of forgiveness did not apply to loans in the public domain. And the rabbis did this because the rich were no longer lending to the poor at all when they approached the seventh year, because they knew if they did, they'd lose that money. If they lent in the sixth year, in the seventh, it would be forgiven, and they couldn't charge interest, so there was no real incentive to lend, which, which left the poor very few options. And so the rabbis established Prosbol, which uh, probably with the best of intentions, to, to, to encourage the wealthy to lend to the poor without fear of losing that money. So they essentially made a loophole, right? They made a loophole that allowed them to feel like they were honoring God by lending to the poor near the year of forgiveness. But when that year came, they didn't actually have to forfeit the cash. And Prosbol was enacted by Hillel the Elder, which is one of the most important figures in Jewish history. He helped develop the Mishnah and the Talmud. He loved the law of God. He wanted other people to know it. But human beings, human beings find it so hard to give up what is owed to us that even the most wise and learned and faithful among God's people will sometimes rewrite the law of God before we'll give up what we're owed. There's a PS because it's just that hard. Why is it so hard? I think in part it's so hard because we are image bearers of God. We were made in the image of a God of justice, and that's a very good thing. You think it's just the good in you that makes you want to give a couple of bucks to the guy at the corner? You think it's just the good in you that that makes you hate when bad things happen to good people? 
Do you think it's just the good in you that, that makes you infuriated when you hear that kids have been victimized? That's, that's not just the, that's the fingerprint of God on you. Even if you do not yet know the God to whom that finger belongs, you cannot escape the impression of being made in his image. Yes, you should be angry at that because so is he. Yes, your heart should burn for injustice because his does too. That's the good stuff. That's, that's the image of God in you. The, pro- the problem came when we fell, when we disobeyed God, when we went our own way and we lost our holy innocence but not our holy image. And so over time, that good desire for justice became bent and now it's been reduced by sin to sometimes not much more than just a simple hatred of forgiving what we're owed. Why are we so unwilling to let people off the hook? We're so unwilling to let people off the hook. But guys, when we don't forgive, who's really on the hook? Think about it, who's really on the hook? And you know what? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you have no reason to defer to faith in agreeing to forgive the unforgivable in your history, but go with me here. Do you ever see like on a college campus, there's a path that all the students walk on, but there's no sidewalk there? And you know that all the students walk on it because there's no grass. The grass is all gone. It's just dirt in a straight line. That's basically what a neural pathway is. Every time you make a decision, your brain sends a signal down a path And if you make the same decision over and over again, the path gets deeper. Soon all the grass is gone, the bumps are smoothed out, and pretty soon uh, it becomes easier to take that path than to even try a new path. And then you end up taking that path even when you you don't mean to, because it's harder and harder to walk anywhere else. When we refuse to forgive... When we, when we refuse to let somebody off the hook, when we ruminate on our resentments, we are digging a ditch in our brain deeper and deeper and deeper until we get stuck in it. And when you are stuck in a ditch of pain, which is where unforgiveness and, and resentment leaves us, our sympathetic nervous system slows our digestion, it increases our blood pressure, and it releases the stress hormone cortisol into our bloodstream, which means essentially that the people that we don't want to forgive in addition to what other damage they've done to us, are also costing us sleep and making us fat. So Christian or not, I don't want someone to have that power over me. Don't give it to him. Don't give it to him. Author Anne Lamott writes, unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. I love that. It's not just, it's not just unholy, it's also completely irrational. Why is it so hard? I think it's also hard because I think in a lot of cases we we underestimate the extent of our own sins and that makes us very hard-hearted. In an essay on forgiveness, C.S. Lewis writes, in that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. Of course, in dozens of cases, either between God and man or between one man and another, there may be a mixture of the two. Part of what at first seemed to be the sins turns out to be really nobody's fault and is excused. The bit that is left over is forgiven. But the trouble is that what we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. What leads us into this mistake is the fact that there usually is some amount of excuse, some extenuating circumstance. We are so very anxious to point these things out to God and to ourselves that we are apt to forget the very important thing, that is, the bit left over, the bit which excuses don't cover, the bit which is inexcusable but not, thank God, unforgivable. And if we forget this, we shall go away imagining that we have repented and been forgiven when all that has really happened is that we have satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. They may be very bad excuses. We are all too easily satisfied about ourselves. 
Guys, we have a, a very old, very human tendency to undersell our own shortcomings. And when we examine our own sins, we flood our thoughts with all of the, 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 the good reasons that we did this or that. We make ourselves feel better about bad behavior or malice or meanness or spite by recalling all the ways that we were provoked. But when someone sins against us, we assume the only motivation was their desire to hurt us. We do this all the time. We do it on a large scale. We do it on a small scale. When you're driving on 436, right? And you need to get into the left lane so you can get to Chick-fil-A because your kid is in the back screaming for some nuggets and you have 10 minutes to, to, to get them to your mom's house before you're late for work. And, and, and so you swerve over into the left lane and you check your mirror and someone's there, but you cut them off and it's fine. And, and you figure, you know what, if they really understood the predicament that I'm in, they would have smiled and waved me in because, like, they just, because this is an extenuating circumstance. But then later that day, you're on I-4 in the far right lane, which we all know is about to end in Altamont Drive, and the person right next, next to you seems to be exiting, and then at the last minute, they swerve over and they cut you off, causing you to, to break quickly, spill your latte on your pants with a bleepity bleeping mother bleep head, right? And you're sure, you are sure that the person in that lane is some punk college kid who doesn't even pay her own car insurance, and you are sure... That, that she's, you know, paying no attention to the road because she's uh, on a group text about saving seats at Regal Altamount, you know, and, and, and you're sure that, that, that she's running late to see Venom for the third time. And, and so, so you, just want, you just want to crush her with the force of a thousand angels for being so entitled, right? It's possible. It's possible that she swerved because of a pothole. It's possible that she swerved to avoid a squirrel because her own three-year-old is in the back seat and she didn't want to learn the harsh reality of the circle of life this early. It's possible she's rushing someone to the hospital. We, we, we always assume the worst. We assume that we are the only person on I-4 who, who has a shred of decency, ever. But who does that make entitled? We weigh our sins against the sins of others, but we don't always realize that we're using unfair scales. And now I know, I know that what's been done to you, I know that what was done to me was a lot worse than being cut off in traffic. But believing that we've never done anything wrong or as wrong, it probably doesn't actually make us better human beings and it certainly does not excuse the bit left over in us. This gets a PS because it's hard, but also because Jesus wants us to know that there is a connection between our ability to forgive and our ability to be forgiven. The need to forgive implies judgment itself, right? Again, in, in, if there's no sin, there's no need to forgive. We're making a judgment here. But in just a few short verses, Jesus is about to say, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I'm not suggesting that what happened to you wasn't wrong. I'm not even suggesting that, that, that you had any fault in it. All I'm suggesting is that even though you may be faultless in this experience, we are not faultless in every experience. And the trouble with standing tall on the moral high ground is that we're generally looking down at everybody else. In Regroup, our recovery ministry, we ask our participants to do an inventory, a fearless and searching moral inventory of their lives. They make a, a life timeline of everything that happened to them, all the things that were done to them, as well as all the things that they did to other people, all the sins they suffered and all the sins they inflicted. 
And we do this not just so that we have this record so we know what we did and what we need to say sorry for and what's been done to us, but, but because this examination helps us to understand what's at stake here. It helps us understand the urgency there is to both receive and offer forgiveness. It helps us clarify who the real enemy is. Martin Luther writes, the mistakes, our neighbor, the mistakes of our neighbor have been caused by the devil, and therefore we ought to have a heart for people. This is the way you ought to think about your neighbor's sin. Although your neighbor has acted against you out of malice, malice still he is confused, captivated, and dazzled by the devil. Therefore, you should be pious enough to take pity on him for being overpowered by the enemy. We're all fighting the same enemy in ourselves and one another. It's the same enemy that makes me gossip, that makes someone else murder. And when we don't forgive, he wins. Because he's first seduced the one who hurt us, but then he seduced us right afterward. In the right set of circumstances, in the right set of circumstances, we are all capable of the worst evils. And we should thank God for every moment that we're not yet in them. And we should fight for our brothers and sisters who are, because then we win. And even if in your examination of your own heart you find that you've done nothing to cause or contribute to the sin done against you, that's good. There, there are things that you are not guilty for, but you will be better for having looked. Having a knowledge of the depth of our own sin makes us tender, it makes us humble, it, and it makes clear that we don't really want what's owed to us. Because what's owed to us, when we understand the enormity of our own sin, we realize that what's owed to us is death. I take a great deal of pride in pretending to be a good parent sometimes. Um, so I've trained my daughter to give certain responses to questions if anyone should ask, Ember, why are you so smart? She says, because of genetics. Right now, she's starting to do chores around the house to earn quarters. And so if I ask her, hey, Ember, uh, what's it called when you save up money to, when you work to save up money to buy something that you want? And she says, that's economics, mommy. She's four. Um, if you've ever studied economics, you, you may know that when a debt is forgiven, it's also absorbed somewhere else. It doesn't just disappear. And so for the wealthy man who forgave the debt of the poor man in the seventh year, that debt didn't just disappear. It was absorbed by the wealthy man. He paid the price in crops and gold. When we forgive others their sins against us, that debt doesn't disappear. It's absorbed by us, and we pay it in tears and heartbreak and ultimately acceptance. And when Jesus forgives our debts, the debt doesn't disappear. It's absorbed by him, and he paid it with blood and his final breath. When I think about forgiving the guys who left my brother for dead when he overdosed, I feel... I feel like it might kill me. I feel like it might kill me to absorb that much debt. It feels like death. And in a certain sense it is. It's a death. It's a dying to self. But when I look at my inventory and I examine my own heart and my sins and my motivations... I cannot help but realize that for Jesus to absorb my debt, all of our debt, it didn't just feel like death, it was. It didn't just break his heart, it stopped it. Our entire hope for eternity 
is predicated upon the possibility that a person who has done nothing wrong can forgive a person who has done everything wrong and done that everything with their eyes open. Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but they did. They did. There's evidence in the scripture that they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, that they didn't give him a fair trial, that they were willing to sacrifice this innocent life so that Rome didn't crush the Jews because of a popular religious uprising. In that sense, they knew exactly what they did. So he didn't mean forgive them because they don't know they're killing an innocent man. They knew that much. He meant forgive them, for they don't know that the force behind their malice, if they could see it for what it is, would cause them to recoil in horror for what they've done and why they're doing it. Forgive them because they don't know that they've become the devil's hands and feet in the murder of their only hope. Guys, we, we are all fighting the same enemy. And forgiveness is one way that we deliver a damaging blow because even if we have to re-forgive every single morning because our heart starts to clutch again at retribution, even, even if choosing to forgive just for today is all we have in us, it's enough. Because it invites Jesus into our midst and I promise you it's not all he has in him. So the place I find myself this morning is trying to determine what percentage, if any, of my withholding relationship from my loved one is about punishing the one who hurt me versus protecting myself from future harm. And I honestly don't know where that is right now. I have a lot of examining of my own planks to do before I think I can be sure, that, sure of that. I still don't know if I'm going to take the call. But what I do know is, is that if I don't, it must not be because I'm punishing the one who hurt me. And if it is, I probably haven't looked closely enough at myself. I don't want to be a person who works out my own issues from the pulpit, but I also recognize that it would be disingenuous for me to stand up here and tell you to forgive if I'm not willing to do it myself. And so this is an examination that I am currently actively walking through right now, and I'm throwing myself on the mercy of God to even be standing here, and I'm not asking you to forgive or do something I'm not willing to do. I think my hope for all of us, and what I'm asking for you to do today, is just to join me in that examination even if you don't have someone to forgive right now, someday you will. Someday you will, and what a gift it would be to have done this hard work before you're tempted to handcuff yourself to someone you might be just as guilty as. One last thing, then we'll wrap this up. <laughs> there are folks sitting in here today, and, and, and I think some of you are feeling like you're, you're racking your brain about who you need to forgive and you're feeling like you're never going to get this right and you're feeling defeated and, and you don't even, you, you just feel like you're failing. You don't even know what you're failing at, but you're sure it's something. And, and, and what I want to say to you is that it's possible that the person that you need to forgive today is you. If you're punishing yourself, you're, you're, you're paying penance by not accepting forgiveness because it feels like being let off the hook, because it feels like chief grace, it's not. It's very costly grace. It's just that you're not the one who's paying for it. Because here's the harsh reality. The, 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 the self-imposed punishment that we can produce is not nearly harsh enough. Not to make up for sin. And therefore, we're punishing ourselves for nothing. Let yourself off the hook. 
for God's sake, let yourself off the hook because Jesus already took your place on it 2,000 years ago. And the punishment that he endured was so awful, so tortured, so painful, so severe, you can't inflict upon yourself the amount of punishment it would take to receive forgiveness. It's not within your power, and it brings God no satisfaction, no glory to see you suffer a punishment he has already endured for you. Because the punishment it took was death, and that is why he is the Savior. But not even death could keep him away from you, and that is why he is the Lord. 